Hey everyone and welcome to yet another episode of Morgan Webster's Wrestling Friends. We've got to be approaching the hundreds now. I do have a uh, uh, a guest lined up for number 100, something I've wanted to do for a while, but I'm not going to give that away. But yeah, if you are listening to the podcast and you have been for the last 90 odd episodes, then you'll probably know who I am. But if, you, uh, if you're new to this and maybe you've come along because of this week's guest or maybe you've come along because you were searching somebody else and found this podcast. And then, of course, this uh, introduction is needed. The voice you're hearing now is the undisputed king of the mods, the mod father himself, Flash Morgan Webster. And more important than that, for the next 45 minutes to the hour, to the hour and a half, however long, this evening with Mick Foley goes this week, I will be your host, or as I like to call myself, the facilitator for all these chats, discussions, gatherings. You know me, absolutely love that word, gatherings. With your wrestling favourites, or as I like to call them, my buddies, my pals, but always my wrestling friends. If you are an avid listener, you'll know this podcast comes to you uh, most weeks. I've been pretty good with getting these out. Uh, last three weeks on the trot, my guest did fall through this week, but I found I found a replacement for it. And I'll explain a little bit more in a second, but uh, if you are an avid listener, you'll know this podcast comes to you free charge most weeks on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever, wherever you get your podcasts from. And we're able to do that in thanks, in part thanks to our sponsors, PinsandKnucklesMerch.com. If you're a wrestler out there looking for the place to print, uh, maybe you need a designer as well, they've got designers on, but uh, if you're looking for print t-shirts, print hoodies, uh, subliminal printing, screen printing, embroidery at the moment, they've got 10% off this week. If you hit them up this week, they've got 10% off all embroidery. Caps, if you're a band looking for t-shirts, again, all that stuff can be done. If you're looking for drum skins, they do that. If you're looking for printing on drumsticks, they do that. If you're looking for flyers, leaflets, anything, drop uh, drop Shannon and the rest of the team at pinsandknucklesmerch.com a, uh, a message. Tell them I sent you. They might give you a little discount. And, uh, yeah, by supporting them, because they support us, you help keep this podcast free of charge and you get some great bargains because... Even if you've got a supplier that maybe takes two or three weeks, but they're really great with price, Pins and Knuckles usually will match the price and they'll get it to you within seven days. So big thanks to Pins and Knuckles Merch for keeping us free on the year. And big thanks to you guys to keep on going there because they keep being the sponsor because you guys keep going and giving them good business. So definitely go check out pinsandknucklesmerch.com. Um, of course, uh, maybe you don't need to print t-shirts. Maybe you don't need that. Uh, of course, you can head to uh, morganwebster.pickartel.com com I pick up some one ninety eight t shirts. I haven't released a Flash Morgan t shirt now in about seven months. Um maybe I will. <coughs> Sorry, cough there. Um maybe I will at some point in the next couple of months. I am in my ten year anniversary of wrestling. I might release a ten year anniversary t shirt, might not. Um I'm just enjoying not having to try to shill any Flash Morgan webs t shirts. It's it's a big part of being a, an independent wrestler is getting the merch and it's great sometimes when you've got uh clear ideas and you've got stuff happening and you want to be shilling it but it's also nice to take a little bit of a break from that. So uh I'm looking forward to uh not doing that at the moment. And uh but I do have some one in eight t shirts over there and have some one in eight flags. Stephanie head over to morganwebs.pickartel.com and pick up those one in eight t shirts, hoodies and flags because I have some of those left. Um of course I say it every week but if you um don't if you don't have the money or can't afford to support the podcast that way then I understand it completely maybe just give me a cheeky shout out on the social media I'm at flash underscore morgan on the twitter I'm facebook.com forward slash flash morgan webster on the facebook I'm at flash morgan webster on the instagram 
or if you want to book me for an uh, seminar, maybe you want to advertise on the Wrestling Friends podcast, all that can be done at the email, which is flashmorganlive.co.uk. Keep it coming, people. I love seeing the tweets, the emails, everything. Just love seeing it. So, yeah, keep them coming. So, yeah, I had a podcast lined up for this week. Um, I was going to go down today and record it. I spoke to them yesterday. They were all up for it. And unfortunately, life throws a curveball and they had to do something else. And again, I totally understand. Uh, They apologised. It is somebody you guys have wanted on for a while. And uh, she, it was a female, she said that uh, we'll get it done at some point. Maybe next week if I'm back from Wales. Um, Maybe not, but we'll have a look. Again, sometimes curveballs, things happen. And I totally understand that this is not somebody's first... This podcast is not people's first uh, protocol, you know, their first, what's the word I'm looking for? This is not their, the, f- the first thing they, they need to do. I'm losing my words here, but yeah, it's not the first thing they need to do. And sometimes other stuff is more important. So I don't, I don't hold it against them. I prefer they go off and do that. And I prefer to sit back down when their head's a lot more clearer. But I do have a contingency plan. Uh, this week it was announced that I will be doing another another evening with Mick Foley. That'll be in Sheffield. Uh, date is yet to be announced, but it will be in March. And uh, I thought, what better way to announce that than to give you a taste of an evening with Mick Foley? So um, back in December, I got to sit down with December and November. When I got to sit down with Mick uh, for two nights. Uh, Mick Foley is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I got to sit down, not just back, not just on the stage room, but I also got to sit down and just hang out with him for two days, pick his brains, chat to him about stuff, and he absolutely was a pleasure. Um, they say never meet your idols. Well, he's one of my idols, and he was every bit of a legend, and it was absolutely great. And I asked him on the second night, would he mind if I popped the recorder down and record it? And I recorded it. I listened to it back. Um, quality is okay. It's not amazing. The first time I've ever done this. There wasn't a direct link into the uh, the zoom it was just free ring on the side when the the microphone was there and i was oh maybe i'll uh, maybe i'll release it maybe i won't and of course i didn't get around to doing it and then when this week's guest was unable to sit down with me and i was i was like well let's give this another listen and i normalized the the sentence when anyone knows anything about audio normalized it and it became a lot more listenable it's again i put a tweet up and said that uh, i was unsure about tweeting it and putting it out there and sharing it but then i realized it's my podcast. It's free content. You guys don't pay for it. If you listen to it and get five, ten minutes into the into the episode and think I can't listen to any more of this um, because the audio is bad or it's just not what you like and you decide to turn it off, then turn it off. And I apologize. But um, again, you haven't paid anything, so don't really worry about it. But if you uh, you sit down and think, well, this is great, I'm getting to listen to a, a conversation with... Mick Foley and Flash Morgan Webster on my way to work or on my way to a wrestling event or on my way anywhere then absolutely great fantastic it's free content and I hope you uh, you enjoy it as for um, my week in review I will be heading down to Wales uh, tomorrow I'll be heading down there and doing some uh, some in-ring training and, and mapping out and planning 
what's going forward with Dragon Pro for the next couple of months. Um, some big stuff on the horizon, not going to get into it, but I was chatting to the Wild Bull Mike Hitchman about it earlier today, and he's got some big, big plans for 2019. So if you're a Dragon Pro regular, or if you're somebody who's in Wales looking to train, then definitely go hit Dragon Pro up, because they've got some big things coming. And uh, Welsh Wrestling just closed their doors uh, their train of their training academy, so apart from... Apart from them, really, I think that uh, Knockout might just close as well now. Um, from what I've heard, there's only one place to train in Wales, and that's Dragon Pro Wrestling. And there might be some other little places, but you won't find another place that have has three WWE NXT UK superstars on the regular training down there. And not to mention Danny Jones taking sessions, who's done a tour with All Japan, and is a regular and is one of the one of the most in demand young wrestlers in the country today, working. Full schedule with Welsh wrestling amongst other places. So yeah, if you're looking for a place to train, if you're in the uh, southwest or if you're in Wales, then Dragon Pro in Cardiff is a must for you. But yeah, that's that's pretty much my week review. We're going to be uh, doing a lot of stuff for Dragon Pro, and I'm just getting in the gym. Gym, just getting it done, just getting that shoulder mobility as good as I can, and uh, really looking forward to to uh, the coming weeks and getting under Wales next week and maybe hopefully picking up a podcast with one or two people down there or maybe I'll end up uh, heading to to a city near Stafford and getting this podcast I was supposed to get this week but who knows maybe maybe not but yeah I guess that really does sum it up and I'm not going to waffle on too much um, all that's left to say really is sit back relax and enjoy what was a wonderful evening with Mick Foley and if you do enjoy it and it is something you uh you you quite like then um I'll look into doing some more live because I haven't done I haven't really done any live ones in a while and I think it's something I need to do uh, a little bit more. So I'll look into getting some uh direct feeds into the Zoom and seeing if I can figure out how to uh, get some live podcasts on the go a little bit more. But yeah. Sit back and enjoy what is a wonderful evening with Mick Foley. It's nice because we're all Mick Foley fans. We're here because during the 90s, early 2000s, Mick touched our lives and he ignited a passion for wrestling that's never really went away. Am I right? Yeah. I'd like to say now that uh, Mick is one of my favourites all the time. Mick is hands down my favourite promo guy of all time. He picks up a microphone, I guess who's one of the fact that I get to sit here tonight before you and listen to some of his stories means absolute world to me. And I get, I'll get to share it with, with all of you. Now, I really didn't pay to come and see me, so I think what we're going to do is we get our hands and our feet and welcome to the Hall of Famer, Mrs. Foley's baby boy, Mick
in the entirety of the show. It really bothered me, I had to waste it on that guy. But yeah, he was kind of like, he was upset in the show a little bit. He was kind of like yeah. yelling random stuff. And almost to a person, uh, the guy who was yelling that stuff will feel bad about it the next day. And so the way to circumvent that whole feeling bad about it just not doing it in the first place, right? So, and also, we'll pay more attention. We won't let it get to the point where a guy yelling so about like 15 times before I tell him to shut the heck up. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a blast doing this last night. It was the first time I've done something like this in the UK. And, uh, you know, I, I just come off the, the 20 Years of Hell stage show, and um, WWE was nice enough to film it, so I knew we couldn't just do the same thing. This is kind of a relaxed atmosphere, but we had a blast last night. We did, we did. Everybody, uh, everybody loved the big spot on the face. So that's the goal again tonight. And uh, yeah, feel free to record it if you want to. Although I would, I would say that uh, there's a direct correlation between my level of complete and total honesty and how many cameras I see out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you guys can prepare. This is not like a stage show, you know. But well, it's, uh, uh, I just uh, met Flash the first time last night. We hit it off. We had a great conversation. We got to like one quarter of the subjects that he drawn up. So we're just going to take it away. I do not know the questions. Therefore, he doesn't know the answers. We're just going to see what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody have fun? Yeah. By the way, to my rider, I get two bottles of water and a throne to sit on. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel like a kid. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be a compliment, but yeah, it's a throne fit for a, for a king. Okay. For a king. So that's absolutely fantastic. Um, what I do want to say, though, Mick, is, and I'll point out here, is with you last night, just when we were chatting, and like, we came upstairs, and one of the first things one of the girls said was, she's like, you're so funny. You're so, she's like, oh, you're so funny. You made me laugh so much. And it dawned on me that as much as it is a QA, and we, we chat and talk, you also do throw that humor in, and it's almost like it's a chat, a discussion, a gathering, and it's also a, a bit of a stand-up comedy show as well, a little bit. Uh, you know, you kind of get the feeling last night when things get a little serious, so it's like a wrestling match. It's like, okay, we need a hope spot here, right? But if we're going to tackle a serious subject matter, we're going to make sure there's a little levity thrown in there. So, uh, and then sometimes, like during the Q and A, you'll get a couple serious downers in a row, and so it's kind of my job to make it fun at the same time. You know, if you laugh, it's just an extra, it's just an added bonus, and there's no guarantee you will laugh at all, so pressure's on me, thanks a lot. <laughs> Let's see what happens. We talked about, uh, talking about laughs, we were having a lovely conversation downstairs about uh, a certain someone's laugh, and uh, if you, if you want to do the laugh, we'll see if people can, uh, if people can guess who it is. Yeah, you know, well, like, uh, how many people saw the 20 Years of Hell show on the network? Yeah. Well, that's easy. Nobody's seen us. We've seen the show. But, uh, you know, the main thing that shaped that 1998 cell match was the fact that I went with uh, another one of the uh, wrestlers to the Stanford WWE offices. Uh, you could go years without actually being in the offices. Everybody's on the road. Like no one lives in in Connecticut because they work for WWE unless they work directly for the office. 
Um, but in this case, we had a house show in Hartford, Connecticut, so I stopped by to watch the first ever, and for my money, still the best cell match that's ever been between The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. And I watched that match, and I was just, I was horrified because it was so good. And like, I was like, I'm gonna have maxed out in sixth grade gym class with four pull-ups, like, not a naturally gifted athlete. And I just looked and I said to my friend, I said, what am I going to do? And this friend, generally speaking, had one of the sharpest wrestling minds in the business. But he just shook his head and he said, Agnes, I have no idea. <laughs> and then he started to laugh. He went, uh, 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 you know what I'm trying to do? Uh, you ought to start the nap on top of the cell. <laughs> and he stopped laughing, and I just looked at him and I said, I said, I can do that. So without going there to watch that match, without going to the, the big offices, without watching that match with Harry Funk, that's Funk with an N, so it's still a zero in the F-Bombs, yeah. Uh, I don't, I remember, you know, he was skating, but it struck me that that might be just what we needed to make that match extra special. And uh, my wife did point out that like, you know, Terry was my mentor and my idol, and she said something that you know, just seemed like the common sense, um, uh, common sense commentary. When she saw me return from like, my eighth Japanese trip in really rough condition, and worked for either day with pretty rough brush work for her, she was like, couldn't you have chosen a different mentor? <laughs> <laughs> my whole career would have been different. But I wanted, I wanted to do things like, like Terry Funk did to this day. I mean, he doesn't get many votes when people say who's the greatest wrestler of all time. Uh, he gets my nod because he made it so easy to believe. So he, even when he comes out, I don't even know who Terry Funk is. He'll do both. He's now in his mid 70s, okay? Now he's 20 years old, 50, so he's 73. And for example, he came out to the independent show last year, largely unknown, by, known by maybe 20% of the crowd. And I can tell he works himself in, he gets in that zone every single night, the zone that I was in maybe like 10% of the time I worked. The only people I've seen get in the zone every single time, every night, Terry Funk and Ric Flair, where they are there in the moment every single time they're in the ring. So I say to the ring announcer, I said, you better run. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you, you better run. He's, like, and he's looking at me like he does. I said, you need to run. And he turned into the ring. I said, you need to run. And there Terry punched him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, he got the ice back. And he's like, I can't believe he did that. And I said, what part of work? You better run. Don't run <laughs> and so he just made it really, if you go back and you watch like mid-70s matches with Terry Funk and Gary Lawler, it's, it's, it's just captivating. It's just really captivating the way that Funk, you know, it, he would throw those great punches and then he just kind of, he had this look and he always had a look in his eye and he'd be screaming like the cat, the mankind squeal, which apparently was not good for my vocal cords. Like I can't hit that anymore. I can't even compose it. Because the way you do that is you screech so loudly, you're creating that vibration in your throat and it literally burned a hole in my throat. I remember watching For All Mankind with my daughter, Noelle, and she was scared of her dad watching what I was doing 20 years ago. I can't even do it at all, but I got took that from Terry Funk instead of just screeching like I did. 
he be saying the word pig and like screaming pig, pig, and he just, I think they believe because he believed. And one of the great revelations of my career was, um, came in 1991, my first time wrestling Terry Funk, first time we locked up. I was a guy who had trouble throwing punches, you know, when I broke in the mid-98s. I had a good friend and a great referee, a great friend and a great referee named Brian Hildebrand, who was known as uh, Mark Curtis in WCW. He was a guy who did anything in the ring, he just didn't have a build to be, uh, you know, and he later would go on and be like a Ninja Turtle and do gimmicks and things like that. But he was a great referee for WCW, and he told me the guys I should watch were Bruiser Brody and Terry Funk, and they had matches in Japan with some of the best punches in the business. And I could figure out Brody's punches. They were more like huge overhand chops. And he was super animated, one of the best brawlers that I've ever seen. Sometimes when guys will ask me for advice, I'll go, go find me some Bruiser Brody tapes from all Japan and study them. Like I told Tyrus O'Neill when he was a heel, like, how can you be six, seven with that build and not strike fear into the hearts of people? You need to watch the Bruce Brody matches. So I could figure out how Brody was doing. Couldn't figure out the secret behind Terry Funk's punches. And then we locked up in Budokan, and he punched me as hard as he could in the forehead. <laughs> and I was so disappointed. <laughs> and afterwards, I went, that's it? Like, that's the secret? You just punch people as hard as you can? And all this time, you just thought I was good. <laughs> Well, you talk about Funk, and uh, we didn't touch on King of the Deathmatch last night, but Japan in, in general, you, I just like to talk a little bit about how nowadays everyone has a mobile phone. If I said Japan, people could give me facts in Japan, they could tell me more about it. But back then, you couldn't. Yeah. So what was the culture shock like, like going to Japan for the first time, being, being this American boy who went up there for the first time and, and meeting the people and, and seeing the different food and, and what they liked? How, how was that culture Well, they make it pretty easy when you go over there. It was easier when I worked for All Japan because there's a busload of Americans slash, you know, Brits, uh, Gaijins, they call it, you know, the, the foreigners. Whereas when I worked for it, so when we travel, we stop at the truck stops, and it, it was really kind of easy. They've got this art, art form where they paint their food, they paint the mold of the food, and so you then, you know, none of the stuff that I learned uh, none of the words that I thought I would need. And uh, I could only actually say the words that sounded like English words, like hot cakes or hot tekeka, <laughs> roast pork with roast poku. So I could say those words, and it turns out you don't even need them. You just walk up to these pieces of art and go, I'll take that. But when I was uh, with IWA Japan, uh, Terry was uh, the top the top American and the really the primary reason, I would say the only reason I went over there because uh, I did not think something touched on all the last time. For all the advantages uh, I had when I had my three-year run with uh, Ted Turner's WCW, I never felt like I really got the chance to like really take the ball and run with it. Like it was pretty clear I had to give it back. I was never going to get to go as far as I thought I was capable of going. And uh, I, when I heard that Terry Funk signed with IWA Japan, I thought, here's my chance. I could never actually prove that I'd drawn money anywhere. 
I could not say. I can point to some ratings that went up a little bit when I did an angler's thing. I, I charted them, you know, at that time, they didn't have a 15 minute breakdown. So you get a 2.2 rating on the Sunday night show. You have to compare your ratings for those two hours. It was difficult, and I don't know if anyone else even tried. I legitimately tried and sent like a 20 page report to all the powers of being. And WCW, nothing came of it. But I couldn't honestly say that I had drawn money. And the first time I went on that first tour with uh, Ivan Drake's band, and it was pretty clear to me that I was going to be given that chance. And this is something I was thinking about. You said you enjoyed the funk stuff. I did touch on uh, this, this is idea of uh, being in front of a small crowd, 150 people. It was cold. They booked the South, arenas in south, the south of Japan, and I guess because they were in the south of Japan, they didn't think they would have to heat the buildings. But we were barely over freezing. So it was like me, Rick Patterson from Edmonton, um, Canada, and Tracy Smothers, a veteran uh, the United States German, man, over a kerosene heater. And I saw those, um, I saw the, the, the ropes come down, and the barbed wire go up, they had the, the train, the wrestling, uh, the young boys they called, you know, the trainees who would be taking, and they would do anything for you, you know, like, geez, you know, we were messing around with fire and things like that. Those kids would literally dive on you, put out the fire, they'd do anything for you. One of my, like, one of the things I'm proud of is a couple of guys who ended up becoming big stars remember that I was the only American who was nice to them. Back <laughs> you know, uh, not not saying Tracy or Rick, but there were some guys who real stiff with the matches, not give them anything, kind of treat them like garbage. Uh, but on that night, I was like, man, I got 20 minutes to transform into a different type of human being, you know? I'm a fairly compassionate, kind-hearted person. I've got to find a way to go out there without talking to Terry at all. I've got to transform. And I found a unique piece of music, and I felt like I was on a cloud. And I literally felt like I could fly. And Tracy's mother went up to me and saw that look in my eye and he said, Captain, there's not too many people out there. Promise me you won't do anything crazy. And I looked at him like he was the most absurd request ever <laughs> made in the history of requests. And to this day, I feel like it's the only truly badass thing I've ever said. I just looked and I said, you know, I can't do that. Thank <laughs> you. Followed Terry like a congealed mass, 
And then the, you know, he was like a, a, an iconic figure in Japanese culture. You know, so you didn't know you were getting a history lesson in Japanese culture, right? Because when all, when all Japan air, it had the highest rating of any show on television. And the Americans, who were big stars, and Terry being the biggest, became literally part of the culture. So they would follow him. And then I heard him yell, I heard him cactus. And like, you know, I don't know this, if they plan here. I can just hear him going, cactus. Terry, where are you? And cactus. And all of a sudden, I started crawling towards Terry. He started crawling towards me. And the people, you know, people kind of congealed around us. And we're crawling. And cactus. He started saying, respect. Respect. And I was like, Terry, where are you? And I crawled up his body like you crawl up. You're enjoying this, right? <laughs> <laughs> up each other's bodies. And, and we gave each other that man hug, you know. And I was like, whoa. This. And then he whispered in my ears, I don't drive me. Left uh, TNA, Cody Rhodes, who left uh, 
uh, WWE and they just have a vision for themselves and their guys of the independents and, and like you know, he said Pete Dunne sold a thousand shirts in a week, you know, and he got massive numbers on social media and most casual fans don't yet even know who he is. So you can become a success in the same way that musicians or bands can become a success without a massive following, just as long as the people who follow you really care. So it's nice that it's out there and people can see these things instantaneously. But I also think there's something to the organic build that we lose. I mean, Kevin Owens has thrown off the top of the, 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 the cage by Braun Strowman. And it was trending for like two days and then largely forgotten. And I think that's what would happen, for example, with the 1998 cell match. Hashtag Hell in Cell, hashtag Holy, you know, God is my witness, he's been broken in that. Three or four days. And then probably forgotten or at least blended into everything else. And instead, it was a match. I remember the day after that cell match, Shawn Michaels, you guys looking at my, my sockless legs here? Kind of embarrassing.
kindness was seen as weakness. And so I just surveyed the situation. Who was I talking about specifically when I quoted Bob? We were talking earlier when I quoted Bob Dylan. I said, this is something I've said before, that you better start swimming or sink like a stone. I remember saying that specifically after I saw uh, Natty Neidhart wrestle Charlotte Flair in NXT. I had never seen uh, a women's a women's match like that. And it just, I just, I called it, uh, you know, New Dawn, uh, New Dawn to the Divas. And I was basically saying, now that we know what they can do, don't you dare put them in a lumber jill match or give them two minutes on television. And I thought that would really be a defining moment for, um, for WWE. And I was saying to the company, you better start swimming or sink like a stone. And I don't know who I was talking about today, but that was the feeling I had that so much of, of succeeding in WWE it's not necessarily about what you can do in the ring, although that's first and foremost, but it's about keeping your head above water, like trying to, you know, trying to stay afloat, you know, because otherwise, not to overdo the water motif, but like a wave will come in and the guys, for example, in the aftermath of Hell in a Cell, I wrote about this in uh, Have a Nice Day, that like within a week or two, I remember doing a promo, and it was a heartfelt promo, people weren't interested in listening at that point. The, uh, for everything that was good about the attitude era, it also brought on a very short attention span where fans were almost conditioned to pop every <coughs> six to eight seconds. There was a pattern to the promos. And if you dared go out there and speak for 30 seconds without a tag or a punchline, a catchphrase, a lot of the newer fans weren't interested in listening. And I very seldom dropped the F-bomb, but I did. I went back and I had Paul Bear with me and I was like, Percy, I still call him Percy, and uh, he called me mommy for reasons we won't momentarily. Um, but I just I just realized like I'm I'm sinking here. I'm sinking. And I just surveyed the, the characters of the superstars and I was like, there's great talent here. Nobody is daring to be nice. Steve Austin was so red hot that a lot of people thought, like I said, kindness and weakness, and there were a lot of what I would call stone cold lights. And I just thought, the door is wide open for a kinder, gentler character. And I also thought that we were gearing the attitude era as if everyone watching our show was hip and cool, which is absolutely not true. <laughs> and so what I did, this, other people had done it to a further extent than I did, but I like to think I was one of the first to really embrace my inner nerd and really bring that out, turn it up to 11, and uh, the difference was, you know, it was almost immediate to the point where if you go back and you watch where mankind was June 1998, uh, the time of the Hell in a Cell, and compare it only two months later to SummerSlam, when I, I remember this, it sounds stupid. Uh, I said, yeah, if, you, you know, if you're not down with that, I've got 27 words for you. How much would you would you cut the wood? You had people actually counting, like, he doesn't know how many words there is. <laughs> you know, and, I, uh, and, and uh, there was an angle where, if you remember, I ended up wrestling uh, the New Age Outlaws by myself. Kane kind of turned on me, he didn't show up, and then he came out of a dump, he came out of something threw me in a dumpster and attacked me with a sledgehammer, you know, and so I covered that, you know, I came out and banged on my face. I said, two things going for me. Number one, you know, it was not a direct hit. Number two, I didn't look that good to begin with. <laughs> and people started 
started just catching on to this character and they like empathize with the character to the point where now it's, it's I, every few days someone will come up to me and will say, I want to tell you, you know, I was having trouble in middle school, high school, whatever the case, and they found something to relate to in that character. So I wasn't changing things with the idea of touching anybody's life. I was just trying to survive and trying to find the best way possible to do something a little bit different. And I didn't know it would have any kind of lasting impression. Honestly, when I retired from wrestling for good the first time, <laughs> I thought I thought I had about a year and a half to all life. And if you would have told me that I could sit on the stage here, right here, in this part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. And I was like, well, what is this? 
And I was like, I love it. <laughs> and I said, you need to hashtag it. And then I told her, you know what else you need to hashtag when you did that promo with Edge? And Edge said, but can you honestly say you liked yourself? And Edge shook her head and went, no, you're right, I don't like myself. I love myself. And I was like, hashtag that. Make it a t-shirt, you know, like, it's that constant repetition. That's one of the things that social media is really good about. And that's one of the things that, um, that Vince McMahon has been really big on. You know, you notice that Paul Heyman never comes out without saying exactly who he is and why he's there. Even when John Laurinaitis was uh, the general manager. Hello, my name's John Laurinaitis. Really big on repetition because repetition works. So I, I like to think that if I had been, uh, if social media had been around, that I probably would have utilized it well as a heel and then tried to, you know, adapt and change. And some people do it really well, um, others others don't. And uh, we do judge, you know, we do judge people by their numbers sometimes. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, beneficial to, to get on board. I wish I didn't have to, I miss the days. But all I had to do was show up on TV holding my own book, you know? <laughs> it was so easy. Literally, I was doing a Chef Boyardee commercial for WWE, and they had me, I don't know why they couldn't just superimpose the image of the Statue of Liberty in the background, but they had me out in the New York Harbor with the Statue of Liberty in the background, and I was holding aloft a can of overstuffed beef ravioli. <laughs> and, and, and so this is a national campaign, right? And then I said, geez, you know, uh, the Statue of Liberty is holding a book. And the guy goes, yeah, it's too bad. We don't have a book. I went, I've got a book. <laughs> and then I'm on a national campaign holding my own autobiography. So I miss those days. But again, it comes down to adapting and so I think guys have to learn how to do it. If they, if you, if you can be the exception of the rule, it could be like a Dean Ambrose or a Kate McKinnon, you know, who's not on social media at all, it just kind of um, has to be alert in some way. Well, you think about Ambrose, he was the person that you were going to have your, your last run with. Yeah. What was it about Dean that, that drew you to him? Well, I got asked in 2012, 100, Every time Hunter would ask me to see me, I thought that meant I was being fired as <laughs> an ambassador for WWE. As a matter of fact, it was, uh, uh, December, I'll get back to the Dean Ambrose thing. It was December uh, 26th, the day after uh, Christmas at Madison Square Garden, uh, December uh, 26th, uh, 2011. And my kids were there watching the house show. And I would take them as long as I'm still Nick. After falling, I'm going to do that, you know? That was close. Yeah, <laughs> And then he was saying, hey, talk to you for a second. And I firmly believed I would be brought into his office to be fired. And then he goes, I would like to know how you feel about being inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. I feel pretty good about But he, he uh, several months earlier, asked me, uh, you know, you're on social media. And I said, yeah, yeah, if you like it, it's okay, I'm learning. They had this idea of doing this. It was a great, great idea to do this social media angle. And I said I was all for it. I'd seen Dean uh, at some of the house shows, dark matches, and I knew he was kind of a weird dude. And uh, he did something where he came up to me when I was walking through the lobby of WrestleMania, and he uh, like, attacked me verbally for being such a horrible influence on the 
wrestlers, and then we started going at it on social media back when he had a uh, small Twitter account. And did, did, you, did you know about his background at this point as well? Like, I, I learned, I learned, I learned it, but it, we were having some depth in part of the UK because Dean started talking, he's putting out, Dean was putting out some pretty ominous things about like, you know, seeing me paralyzed, seeing my children starve, and, uh, and it was a little too, a little too close to home, you know. I was, I was having some issues, you know, with uh, um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy that would later be diagnosed and be the reason why we never even followed through with that angle. And I was like, hey man, I was like, hey, I texted him, I was like, hey, hey, did you, uh, I, 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 I remember saying to Dusty Rose, so I go over to Dusty Rhodes, I say, hey, can I talk to you? This is what we call a shoot, right? And Dean sees me and leaps over the guardrail, like in front of all the other talent. And I'm like, oh, hey, come back, I need to talk to you. Comes back, he's looking at us. Listen, man, you can say anything you want about me, but leave my children out of it, okay? okay? Just like that. And so now, I now the next time I look on Twitter, he's just almost threatening my children, you know? <laughs> and I, so I text him. I was like, "Hey, man, I told you, please stop that." And and then the next four hours later, he's something even worse. And I'm texting. I'm like, "What? Don't you care about it? I'm pleading with him." And then I, I erupted, like, I, oh man, I, threw, I went crazy on the director of uh, talent relations, screaming, like, did that look off? And I cut some kind of promo. He really rattled me badly, really rattled me. And then I remember I was going to the awake, awake of one of my daughter's uh, teachers. And I get these, like, eight messages from Dean. And he's like, oh man, sorry, dude, I'm in the UK, I didn't have any phone service. I'm just getting your messages now. <laughs> So, in his head, the fact that I went up to him in front of the boys meant that I was in on a, you're in on an angle together. So he was thinking when I said, please don't mention my children, and then step on the accelerator. And so we reached a, uh, we reached a point where, okay, all right, a huge misunderstanding. Let's go full tilt with this thing. And then uh, I took the WWE uh, impact test for head injuries. And I was aware, as I was taking it, it was not going well. <laughs> so the point, the the point where independent of WWE, I made my own appointment with a neurologist. And then the next day, John Laurinaitis called me and said, hey, man, test. So I went to two different neurologists, both told me the same exact thing, like, you should never wrestle again. And I'll just repeat something that I did. So I had this match where you know, worked out in my head. You know, I, I was good at working around my weaknesses. You know, I've been doing that my entirety of my career. The point where I was even going to ask the Undertaker for permission to come up through the ring because I was going to have a Dude Loves music play and have a pseudo faux Dude Love come out of the stage with the dancing. And then Dean was going to think he had it easy with the least formidable foam of face of bully. Now I'm going to come up behind him through the ring. And then I had this match that I thought was a realistic idea of what I could do, you know, and it included the one thing in my career I wish I'd done, not more, I guess, than one, but primarily I wanted to drop an elbow off a TV truck onto the hood of a car. 
And when the urologist, one of the top urologists in the country, told me I should never wrestle again, I'm so, I almost want this printed on my epitaph, like on my tombstone. The words I said to him, I looked him right down and said, I can work an entire match around my left knee. <laughs> Shows. 
Whereas when it was me and Shane Douglas in Polka, West Virginia, in front of 26 people, and I know there are 26 because I counted them, <laughs> there was no question we were going to let them all hang out. And so, uh, yeah, while well, I yeah, definitely I would have done that. It's a good thing that we're not, you know, the WWE is not allowing chair shots to the head. That's smart. It almost as much. Um, of a reaction out of a really good chair shot. Can I say this is something that I'm so happy to hear? I was never tight, you know Conan, right? Yeah, you know Conan, Conan, yeah. like in Mexico? And I've never tight with Conan, I always got along with him, but he came up and he goes, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, nobody has ever hit me as hard with a chair as you did. And I said, it was in the back too, he was like, yeah. And, I, and he goes, brother, I almost made you cry. <laughs> and you checked your back to see if it was bleeding, didn't you? And he goes, how did you know? And I said, everybody did. I remember Sabu, as tough as he was. I hit him across the back of that chair, and he screamed. And he went, I'm not dating in my way. And the secret was, uh, so, and I, this is something I'll admit, that I stopped doing this the moment I got to WWE and found out my first opponent was the Undertaker. <laughs> Undertaker, he 
so hard for the chair that it made road dogs knees weak. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I would have I either brought up my hands, I would have, uh, and I would have uh, probably not done some of those bone jarring bumps in the smaller house shows. Mick, it's been nice pleasure for me to sit down for the last two days with you, and uh, I think I speak for everybody when I say that you're an absolute legend. All right. <laughs>